pumped, obviously. Right, well, this is midday for you. Hi, and welcome to Contourcast. My name's Cat Boyd. I'm waiting on David plugging his microphone in. <laughs> Hi, David. Hi, how's it going? We're doing a very early morning podcast. It's not. It's not that early. It's, just it's that not early that early. It's just early yeah. for for David because I'm on a new regime of like getting up really early because it makes me feel yeah conspiratorial because nobody else is up when I'm up um, and I'm usually like a, I usually love a long lie so it's all it's just part of my lockdown madness it's like filtering its way through my routines in various different ways. I on the other hand have chosen the path of slinking into sort of degeneracy during lockdown do you know what I mean? Which really Letting goes my... against your whole like Protestant brand. Oh yeah, but I mean that's that's aspirational. That's not. <laughs> it's not any actual like. It's not how I live. Obviously, like uh, no, my 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 lines have been getting longer and longer. I'm you actually... work late. You work. You work late, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, but because we're reading capital at the moment, my plan is to reset my clock so that I get up in the morning exercise and then recapital which is like my ego level of what I you know, like super ego level of who I want to be the sort of person that gets up early exercises studies it'll never happen it'll never happen I mean you just have to like break the back of it right yeah. you just have to be like I'm going to get up at six and then like gradually bring it back I'm going to get up at half five I'm going to get up at five like and you just have to like work back the way yeah, um, yeah and then like once you get into it you just i don't know scheduling a wee siesta and you can still like be up till 10 at night i mean oh my god a siesta <laughs> um just before we started the pod i was uh listening to the classic manic street preachers album the holy bible mm-hmm. um which has made me feel like really pumped for the day yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's a great album. I was, I was listening to it uh, recently, well, a couple of months ago, so last year. Um, but it, it's it's a funny one because now you listen to it. Um, I mean, it's from the early nineties. What, what year did it come out again? Ninety four. Yeah, and uh, I hate to say it, some of the politics in it feels sort of juvenile, but then it just sort of it's just of its time. What do you mean, uh, Back up a minute. Um, so the, the the second song on the album, If, if White, White America Told the Truth for One Day, It's World Would Fall Apart, that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it's, it's, it's the, the lyrical content of that song makes a lot more sense for the 1990s than it does perhaps for our time. Well, sure. I mean, the... the the issue is, is that of course it was like of its time in the 90s because there's actually, seeing that song, there's a lyric that says, um, the chorus is cool, groovy, morning, fine. Tipper Gore was a friend of mine. Mm. And it's all like this like sarcastic um, view of the like the Tipper Gore. So for any listeners who don't know who Tipper Gore was, she was the... Uh, um, she was married to Al Gore um, and he was vice president. She was the second lady of the United States. But in the 80s, she was one of the um, big advocates of the um, like no swearing in like metal records and punk records and hip hop. Like she was one of the big advocates about um, censorship right so obviously the manic street preachers are having a go at that kind of like peril clutch and censorship so obviously it doesn't make sense today because what's happening is that the left obviously the manic street preachers are quite a left-wing band but the left have actually adopted a lot of censorship like so rather than being like the taboo breakers the people standing up for free speech like often there's sections of the left who are more like Mary Whitehouse and Tipper Gore than, um, than you know, like the kind of the, the countercultural forces of the left. Let me give you another example that I saw on Twitter. The Dead Kennedys um, 
California Uberales, right? Uh, yeah, that yeah. song, classic, classic song, right? I love it. Um, they are having a big swipe at California and uh, Governor Jerry Brown, right? See in the lead up to the, see round about like the inauguration, the dead Kennedy's Twitter account tweeted in support of Mitt Romney. Like uh, we are yeah. through the looking glass now, people through the looking glass. Yeah, but on the flip side of that is that, um, you know, just as that is true, the, the parts of the left are kind of more censorious. Um, it's also true that like establishment ideology uh, is not particularly censorious. I mean, they're obvious that there are exceptions, um, but like modern kind of popular culture, very much kind of sanctioned by the US state uh, its general image uh, is one that is like kind of full libertarian in a way. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean, yeah, you, yeah, could, you, you couldn't, you couldn't have a, a Tipper Gore type figure in the democratic establishment today um, because like society is much more hypersexualized. That's, that's much, that's not considered controversial anymore. It's not that it's more sexualized. It's just that's not considered a borderline anymore in kind of, uh, cultural politics. Um, I, that song though does end with a call for like, does it not oppose uh, uh, gun restrictions or something? And there's a reference to the Brady Bill. Um, fuck, fuck the Brady Bill. <laughs> yeah, which I suppose is still is still countercultural <laughs> today. Yeah, but like I do, I, I do find that interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like particularly, like Jello Biafra was obviously one of the like from the Dead Kennedys was one of the big, um, uh, like critics of Tipper Gore's um, Parent Music Resource Centre, which was all about this like censorship drive within those types of um, those types of songs and those types of bands. And um, what I do love about Tipper Gore is that she set up, like when she set up her uh, her like grouping, um, she set up a task force. Like, so if, if there's any like SMP types listening, who, I mean, the SMP is a party, they love a task force. Yeah. They love a task force or everything. This one was called the Congressional Wives Task Force. Which... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Get uh, you. You're in trouble now. The wives you're are in coming. trouble now. The congressional wives task force. You can just imagine it. Do you know yeah, I mean? and and the SNP also love to like ban sugar and stuff. Um, yeah, ban sugar. Um, ban bevy of certain types. Mm. Um, I mean, you know what? I am like a big advocate of abstinence mm -hmm. from from all mind-altering substances apart from caffeine obviously um but the smp do like to uh, do the nanny state bit yeah it's very, it's, that's very scottish though you know people sure. people want want the they want the general general assembly back they want the cut back to tell them how to live their lives do they though and, and perhaps and perhaps sort of that's wishful thinking on my part what was that um, that that weird pseudo religious thing that you sent me on Twitter? What? Like there was you sent me an article uh, on Twitter which was about someone being cancelled in like a pseudo religious ceremony. Uh, that so that if if you want if you want to see um, the real depths of that kind of American subculture. There are a couple of really good examples. One was a documentary uh, that we watched about um, a student uprising at a university in the US called, what was it Evergreen. called again? Evergreen. Evergreen. State College. Is yeah. It? So this is a kind of liberal arts college in the United States where um, that kind of culture just got totally out of hand uh, and basically the university collapsed. Um, and it's it's sort of a, it's one of these things that's very well known on the right, and I dare say there's a degree of mythology around it and so on. This is only a few years ago, and uh, it's not all known on the left that basically like the staff and students alike went completely feral 
uh, and like public order completely collapsed at this university and we all went very kind of lord of the flies basically yeah it was like a sort of um social justice william golding yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and and yeah and it just led to the total kind of civilizational collapse in the zone <laughs> of a university campus um and then uh, and then of course another one of these which goes very underexplored is chad which again has chad is it called chad or chaz or something like oh, that chaz <laughs> It had a few chat it had a few it had a few different acronyms so I, I struggled to remember what it's called but it's also by the way sort of subject now to kind of left-wing amnesia even though it happened about six months ago um which was an autonomous zone was it in portland i can't remember what city it was in even um, no it's capitol hill is chaz stood for capitol hill autonomous zone I think there might have been one in Portland as well, but that's yeah, there was what there was one. I think it was called Paz. <laughs> um, so, uh, which is interesting, right? Because it means that both elements of the left and the right basically took over Capitol Hill within a few months of each other, and in both cases, it ended in uh, extreme violence. Of course, in the Capitol Hill storming, I think five people died, several people were killed in the left-wing occupation as well. Uh, it's actually quite a gruesome story um, and has been totally forgotten. And then the third example of this is one from 2019, which um, again was publicised on the right and probably slightly mythologised, but equally totally ignored on the left, which was when um, a, a theatre group, which has been running, I think, since the 70s or 80s, called Buddies, which was an L LGBT theatre group in, uh, oh God, was it Seattle or something? Right? I don't know my North American geography is part of the problem here. Um, and uh, they're basically a younger generation, or just not even younger as in age, but just newer to the institution, expelled the founders, right? Um, who were totally confused by the emergence of this new subculture in left-wing circles. And it goes on for like two hours, mm. the, 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 the trial with these people absent, right? And becomes increasingly hysterical as time goes on. Uh, and it's mass hysteria. I mean, there's about 60 or 70 people in this meeting and they just, uh, the things they say become increasingly kind of strange and hysterical. And it's very much like, uh, you know, it's, it, it's very much like uh, uh, the crucible and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it, things get out of hand uh, as time goes on. Um, and it's just, I mean, apart from anything else, this isn't, this isn't the first examples of uh, mass hysteria in the United States or anywhere else. Um, it's an interesting psychological study of how that works apart from anything else. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all three of those incidents are not just insights into modern, you know, a sort of modern, subcultural attitude that exists on the fringes of society in the arts or on parts of the left or in academia it also uh, is just an insight into american culture apart from anything else into a yeah. slightly frightening element of american culture and i mean i know we we talk about american politics a lot on this and always caveat it with our, like various anti-american sentiments um but the reason part of the reason I do find like this aspect of American politics fascinating is because it's it's coming here like we import a lot of that discourse from the United States a lot of American campus culture politics ends up becoming part of our own discussions about activism and politics because the ideology is so hegemonic yeah, do you know it's 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 sufficiently hegemonic that this occurred to me the other day, um, which is uh, you know how there's a kind of Scots and kind of miniature Scots revival going on in Scotland right now, right? And this is something which happens every twenty or thirty years. People do this; they they try to recover Scots as a language. I'm not educated enough on what distinguishes a language from a dialect or whatever to know whether or not it is a language. I have no opinion on this. Um, but it did occur to me that if you were going to go on a crusade to rehabilitate Scots in public life in Scotland today, whose cultural influence would you be resisting in doing that? 
it wouldn't be England's. The version of English that we speak in Scotland today is not English English. It's American, American. English. It's American English. Right? Yes. And and the English that the English speak isn't English English, it's American English. Right? Totally agree. The dominant Anglophone culture is American culture. Yes. Of all the countries in the United Kingdom, right? Uh, with the, I mean, it's more complex than Northern Ireland. Of all of, of the three nations on Britain, right, on the on the island of Britain, the culture which has been most suppressed in recent decades is the English culture, without question, right? Because at least in Scotland, like we have, and our cultural heritage is famously, you know, it's like uh, it was constructed in the Victorian era and all this kind of stuff. But it has real institutions, it has a real institutional life, there's institutional memory, we just celebrated Burns Day a few days ago and so on. Um, there's a, a, an even probably greater extent in Wales, because in Wales they've actually preserved their language. Um, in England, honestly, like their folk traditions have been much more submerged, because they had to take on the mantle of Britain. Like, they've lost a significant area of their national identity in England to the construct of, of the British state and so on. Anyway, the point is, I just wonder how aware people are of that, that if you are trying to resurrect a, a Scottish national culture, a Scottish national dialect and so on, in defiance of what? It's got to be in defiance of the United States, of, of, of US cultural importations. Um, and I assume that people don't really recognise that, that they think they're still resisting some sort of English cultural influence. And if you're going to start with a language, where do you want to stop? We wear American clothes, we listen to American music, we watch American films. I would be happy to keep all that shit. I don't care about that. I just wonder if anyone rehabilitating Scottish culture is interested in testing American concepts of the self. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wonder it in hope um, yeah but I don't know well because we are part of the, the Das Kapital reading group um, on the side of reading Marx I am uh, taking up reading Freud mm. um, because I think that we do need to uh, bring back Freud to the left mm. to begin to like resist some of the importations of American, um, like psycho and like their their psychology and their approach to psychology, their approach to therapy, like these sorts of things. Like I want to um, think about like why Freud is important in that trilogy of like Lenin, Marx, and Freud, which is a trilogy that's kind of been lost. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm more and more interested in, in psychoanalysis. I'm uh, listening to a really interesting union podcast uh, at, at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's not even it's not even a question of uh, it's not even a question of re resisting for the sake of resisting. Like the American version of psychoanalysis, for example, it's just worthy. It's just worthwhile to recognize that that's what it is. Like, as with English, right? I think people think the English that they are speaking is just English. Like, that's the extent of cultural hegemonization now. And I think that the version of psychoanalysis, which is an Americanized version that people think of, you know what I mean? It would be, it would just be worth our while to, to rediscover the European version of that, um, just to distinguish it from the current practice. And um, what I will say about American culture is, I have noticed some um, very clear and obvious symptoms of terminal decline in American culture. And um, I will give you two examples recently. Um, the reboot of Sex and the City, just what everybody needed. <laughs> the performance of uh, the new radicals, you only get what you give. That's a, that's Biden's a inauguration. That is a different level, man. That, I mean, that, is that not like just like decline in glowing neon letters? That song is was, is the most touched song of our kind of childhood slash adolescent. I mean, how old were you it, when that came is out? Is it? Are you oh, sure it's not things it, only get better? Which is the British version of you only get what you give, right? 
<laughs> that, yeah, things can only get better. It's, it's less obnoxious than that. <laughs> it's less dodgy, man. Um, I mean, <laughs> that that song is unbelievable, and it and it and you, it was unavoidable for about two or three years. It just seemed to go on forever. Um, you know, yet, we will get cancelled for slagging that song off. People are, are very attached to it. How how can anyone be attached to that? <laughs> I thought it was going to, because you were going to say the reason they played it allegedly at Biden's inauguration is because it was his son's favourite song or something. Or it was a shit. Is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, what a whitey. <laughs> Lagging it off. <laughs> Some sort um, of fucking memorial for his. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, you go to hell. Um, but I don't know. I'm not gonna let people just sort of throw that at me and be like, so well, so we all have to pretend we like that shit song. Well, see, this is this is a good example of emotional terrorism. Oh. Like that, I can't say that that's terminal decline in American culture, like in one sort of nice package, because it's actually got some like emotional power. So you have to like sort of roll back on your critique um, and pretend that you like the song. You only get what you give by the new radicals. These these days you can't you these days you can't even say that you don't like you only get what you give. <laughs> you can't even say that, they throw you in jail. You should yeah. get a slot on talk radio. <laughs> you can't even you can't even say that anymore without the emotion police turning up and chucking you in emotion jail. On that note. <laughs> uh, Biden's inauguration. We haven't even we haven't even done a pod on this. Um, I am thrilled by Cornel West's description of Joe Biden, which is a mediocre, milk toast, neoliberal centrist. Is that not just like the most perfect tagline for Joe Biden? I'm going to disagree with him, um, <gasps> which uh, because you know you get right. I think that that description of a politician has sort of out, outlasted its usefulness um, because it's it's a body of descriptions that I think owes something to a critique of social democracy from before the neoliberal era, right? So the way people talk about Joe Biden, or I'll extend this, Nicholas Sturgeon, or Macron in France, uh, all these sorts of people, Keir Starmer, right? The way people talk about them is as though they're on our side, but feebly and uselessly, right? That's the, that's the problem, is that they're pale. The mm. problem, you know, the, the problem is they're weak. That's not Joe Biden's problem, right? Um, this is a criticism of social democracy that was designed for a time when, within living memory, social democrats had created the welfare state, legalized trade unions, given everyone the vote, do you know what I mean? That's 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 a criticism for people like that. You're you're on, you know, which I wouldn't even necessarily agree with those with that idea that those social democrats were on our side, right? But I could understand why someone would say, well, you, Mr. Harold Wilson, or you, Mr. Clem Attlee, you're on my side, but weakly and feebly, and not enough, right? And you're not fighting hard enough for me. Um, you couldn't possibly say that for Joe Biden and Nicholas Sturgeon. They're not on our side. Uh, Joe Biden is not on the side of the American working class. He is militantly opposed to the American working class. And any reforms that he happens to pass will be done with that standpoint in mind. So then you get people saying, we need to push Joe Biden to the left, right? He is not the right wing of something that you're the left wing of. He's not part of your movement. You can't push him to the left. You can't. And when, when you think that you can, that's him pulling you to the right. If Joe Biden, you know, make, make some sort of policy intervention the next four years that really substantially improves the law of American working class people, which would be the first time that's happened in decades, probably, right? If that happens, it will be because he is defeated. If that happens, it will be because he is pushed into a corner by mass action in American society. The same as in, in France, right? The yellow vests got Macron to back down on a lot of stuff. They didn't push him to the left or pull him to the left or something like that. They beat him, right? They gave him a thumping. That's, honestly, it's, it's like, 
linguistically, you can see it happening, right? Within days of, of Biden coming to office, it was like, okay, the celebrations are over. I wasn't fucking celebrating. Like, the celebrations are over. Now it's time to start holding him to account. This is another one. Hold, to what account? I don't see in defense of Corner West. That's not Corner West's position. Yeah, possibly he not. Like, yeah. So when he describes Biden as like a milquetoast neoliberal centrist, he's not saying, and our job is to pull Biden to the left. Yeah. Because that's not yeah. political tradition. Like, I, he goes on to talk about in the same interview that the Democratic Party serves the interests of corporate America. Like he still rails against like Obama's failures in the 2008 financial crisis and his failure to jail white collar criminals when the Democratic Party is still committed to mass incarceration regime um, and, you know, like not uh, ensuring that workers are treated with dignity or a transformation of like society. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think that that's what someone like Cornel West is talking about. And this whole, like, not. So I, mean, I, I think I think it's a fair description of Biden, like because he's not yes. because it, because the the important part of that quote for me is the fact that he uses mediocre and milk toast, right? So Clinton, for example, like I mean Bill Clinton is a neoliberal centrist, right? And the say and the and the tradition that you're talking about, but Joe Biden is even like he's more mediocre than that. Do you know what I mean? This is someone that, like, when we started this podcast, we were making jokes aplenty about. Like, this is before even, like, the hair sniffing. But it would just yeah. seem like an unbelievable thing that this person would be president when they can barely string a sentence together, um, when they have such a record on things like mass incarceration, um, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, the role of him as VP in Obama's administration around Latin America and um, the coup in Honduras and like how botched like the US handling of that was. So, I mean, I think it's a fair description to talk about Biden's position within the neoliberal center as being a particularly woeful one. I agree with that. What what does the word, my, my worry about the word milk toast, which I don't even know um, which is spelled like M-I-L-Q-U-E toast, right? I have no idea what the origins of that word are. It just uh, means feeble, bland. But yeah, but that's, I just feel like a lot of the time, I'm not saying in Cornell West case, but a lot of the time that word is used just to mean like, oh, what a disappointment. Like, no, it means like, I mean, it just means like feeble or bland. Like, so, um, like, I mean, a lot of the time it's code for centrist. Like, yeah. so that's like how I've heard it is uh yeah but but look what what what's what's his record so far um DC is full of troops tens of thousands of troops and they'll be there for months is the news now yeah so the, the capital city is full of this is occupied by the army right um social media is being censored at his behest all over the world not just in America all over the world. Yeah. And this is this is what I mean. That doesn't scream milk toast to me. Like that that suggests something uh, much hardier. Like I I see him as well. I see I say him. It's not it's not Biden who yeah. is censoring social media. It's the forces of capital and the establishment who work through Biden, but also are big tech. Yes, absolutely. Like, and I, that's not to do with Joe Biden himself as a policymaker or as a president. Anyone who thinks that Joe Biden is actually like driving any type of agenda is like way off, off, off the mark. Like Biden is the personification of forces of capital. He's backed by Wall Street. Like he has, he raised like the highest amount of money of like even more than uh, Trump and Obama for his presidential campaign. Like he has more donations from the financial sector than either of them. It's venture capitalist and private equity types that are ba that bankrolled Biden's presidential bid for a reason. He's not the person doing that. I, I agree. I think, um, you know how people, uh, there was a really, uh, there was um, an American writer who said that Trump was first white president right which was uh, an interesting way of stating that he was 
you know, every, the whiteness of every previous US president had been taken for granted. Then one black man came to office and then a deliberately white president had to, mm. had to, had to follow him and it, and it had to be like the whitest guy in the world, Donald Trump, um, as, a ba- as, as part of a backlash. I mean, I wonder if we will, you know, what we'll say about Biden, if, if we will say, for example, that he was, you know, the first truly post-democratic party, uh, uh, president. I don't mean as in the broad sense that what I mean literally is the party. I don't think you could say he's a Democrat. I, like, I, I see this as like, uh, a, it's purely, his government is just the security apparatus plus Wall Street. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. Um, he, he is like, listen, in two years time, there will be nothing left of his brain. Um, and as you say, I don't, I don't think he's really driving policy developments. I'm not saying he's been like usurped. I think he came to office and said to people, basically this country needs collective leadership yeah by its sort of nomenclature yeah that's that's what it needs yeah i i agree with that it's the same reason why i think it's been like for the last four years it's been wrong-headed to simply monster the character of donald trump because Mm -hmm. actually like trump and trumpism isn't just about him like it's actually like there's so many like supporting uh, structures that have been built up over time um, and I don't mean like uh, I don't mean institutionally although you know you had there were big institutions that back Trump like the the NRA for example but that you have Trump simply as the symptom of like the American sickness and um, the same way that Biden is like a representative of of these different forces so I think that like when I'm talking about Biden I mean, yeah, I don't know what that, is, that ensemble of kind of like security and 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 financial. Well, I mean, he was the Wall Street Journal like backed him. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, this is not, and this is what frustrated me about the inauguration is that people were, um, I don't know, seem to have lost their like critical faculties. And I'm like, I had that. Oh, wait, wait, and I'll tell you. I had a, a argument by text <laughs> with my mum, which really gave me some flashbacks. So my mum doesn't listen to the podcast that I don't know, but I'll tell her to listen to this bit because she's getting the big shout out. So I sent my mum like an article I'd written about Biden's presidency and she was like, oh, for goodness sake, can you not just allow us one day of joy that Trump is gone and you know we've got like someone good in the White House, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what do you mean good? Like he's not a good person. And she was like, oh, well, you know, but like people are relieved. And I was like, suddenly, I was like, I remember this argument. This is the same argument I had about Blair with like my, with my mom and dad. It's the same argument about like, I mean, you've got rid of this like evil and it's been replaced by someone good. And it's, it's not, I mean, it's not about like my mom and dad and their politics. I think that that's more of a sort of generalized thing, but it was almost a complete rerun of my experience of Blair in the 2000s. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Could you just hear? He was a good guy and he was one of our guys. Yeah. Could could you, as you were reading those words, could you faintly hear things can only get better? can only get better um but that that this is the thing this is what i said like and it look you do feel like a bit of a fucking curmudgeon right oh, but, I, I, but i do but you do just think i can i can um i can't just live my entire life sort of um as though I'm kind of suffering from this amnesia where I don't recall that we had all these celebrations before and that the eventual outcome of all of them was that the civics, you know, the civic sphere was further degraded, um, you know, class uh, divisions became more entrenched. I mean, wealth inequality became more entrenched. There were more foreign policy disasters. And the outcome of all of it, a few years later, further down the road is a bigger, badder evil comes along and everyone's like, oh, how did we get here? Um, probably because we were all dancing around shouting things can only get better. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, we keep doing it. And, and, it and, and, and people say it so pragmatically. You've got to allow people like, this thing as well about, 
this and it, it, like this language of sort of think about people's psychological health, right? Listen, if you actually feel depressed by Donald Trump, right? You, yeah. You, you probably, like, I, I mean, and there are lots of people who are in a very good position to be depressed about Donald Trump, but you probably need to take a bit of critical distance from it. But the other thing is, no, I'm not going to be told that I have to say something that's good for someone's mental health. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's, there's we should, it, it's a patronizing way to talk about people. Like, yeah, get on the internet and abuse people. Get on the internet <laughs> and tell people how stupid they are, right? <laughs> that's a much healthier way to approach but but like we should be making arguments from a rational standpoint that's what i'm saying yeah um and it's dishonest to make arguments on another basis again this is the sort of like the, the flipping thing i was saying about like emotional terrorism do you know what i mean like you're being held emotionally hostage there because you know you do feel a bit like a, a killjoy um and what's the polite way of saying like pissing on a bonfire? Raining on yeah. a parade. <laughs> but but the thing is, I mean, like, I, I don't really accept that people need a 24-hour window of senseless, irrational joy to deal with the years of trauma and so on, and then we get back to it the next day. I don't think that's what's happening. I don't like I, I think that people are being dishonest when they say that's what's happening. What's happening is the most powerful institutions in the world, including all of the mainstream media and all of the social media, which is now many times the scale and influence of traditional media, and the most powerful state in the world, the American state, and all the financial centers in the world, and all the militaries in the Western world are celebrating the fact that a restorationist regime has arrived in the United States to prop up the system and you are being ideologically influenced by that, right? Which is fine. I'm not not saying, therefore, you're a fucking sheep, right? (laughs) I'm just saying, let's be honest about about that situation, right? And that the elements on this society, it's a very class-mediated way in which that ideological enforcement works on, on the system, right? In uh, Morningside, in Charlottenburg, in Berlin, in fucking Wimbledon or something in London, right? That's where you, if you could have taken a temperature of joy over Joe Biden coming in, it's upper middle class suburbs around the Western world, right? And academic, the number of liberal academics who were losing their shit in celebration of, I just used a chronic Americanism, of the Biden ascendancy, right? <laughs> I think of it as like a, a royal court, but it's global now, right? And all the fauners turn out to the court on the first day of the, the new king's reign and so on. The fawning was unbelievable, right? I Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Obama was this chronic, right? But then, of course, there was a special ideological turn to the Obama inauguration in his first time. Um, which was he was the first black president. It did feel like you could. It did. It was orchestrated, but it did feel like a like a real cultural moment and so on. So I can understand more of that one. This guy is a fucking husk, right? And he's been in power all his life. Like this isn't a new development. Joe Biden has been in the American ruling establishment all his life, yeah. right? So <laughs> it, it took on a totally deranged. Uh, aspect i mean the bbc obviously right i fucking hate trump and anyone uh, right right wing culture wars are totally obsessed with this idea that they are that they have been completely banished from the public sphere are at it as everybody knows right i mean there are little bits of truth here and there but that idea is stupid that said there is absolutely no way that you could have watched the bbc coverage over the time of the inauguration and said yes this is balanced. Uh, John Sopel said, just think, you know, this uh, this inauguration, this triumph of democracy, this is the line, I'm not exaggerating this at all, the triumph of democracy is taking place in Washington. And just a few days ago, America narrowly escaped a second civil war, not between North and South, but between uh, city and country, between the educated and the uneducated. And he didn't mean that metaphorically. He didn't mean like the way people say there's a civil war in the, in, in the SNP. 
He didn't mean it that way. He meant literally guns. He meant uh, an army of morons with vacant uh, expressions on their faces fighting against everyone with a doctrine, right? Yeah. But with machine guns. That's what he actually thought could have happened because he has disappeared into ideology so far that he's like the fucking high priest of this nonsense. And so is everyone who is a news presenter on BBC. For a couple of weeks, there was proper collective hysteria in those newsrooms. If I was an editor at the BBC, I would have gone into those newsrooms and broken them up and said, you need to go and have a fucking lie down because you have lost your mind. Every, see on the day of the inauguration, every 10 minutes, someone said, and just think a couple of years, a couple of weeks ago, democracy barely survived. What, yeah. what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Honestly. Like all that like democracy prevailed nonsense. Madness. It's Utter madness. It was totally deranged. Like there was I mean, a there was Biden a zero... and the whole democratic establishment are complicit in Trump. These are not we've done this before on the pod, like about this like goodies versus baddies. That is not what this is. Yeah. Like the idea that democracy was under threat from the Capitol Hill protests, I think is wrong. The idea that democracy has been restored with a candidate who was bankrolled to the tune of $74 million by private financiers from the like financial services sector is nonsense. It's nonsense. And by the way, if you were traumatized by Trump, and I, I don't mean this in terms of people who could be no other than traumatized by Trump, like, you know, all the people he stuck in jail or the kids he put in cages on the Mexican border or et cetera, right? I mean, if you were traumatized by the spectacle of Trump, why wouldn't you be just as traumatized by the spectacle of Biden? I mean, apart from anything else, Biden is more racist. <laughs> I mean, it's a, in terms of their personal record, it would be hard not to come to that conclusion. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just think, and, and the, the other thing is that mood of emergency, right, which extends from the center of the system out into parts of the left, it's an emergency for Trump. Why is it? Why is the class emergency never an emergency? I mean, the fact that so many people are losing their jobs in the United States. Why is that never the cause of the national emergency? Because we've seen waves of these emergencies in the last few years. Like people tried to turn Brexit into this emergency situation where, oh, it's not the time for a debate about the European Union because Brexit is happening and it's a fascist coup, right? Uh, we've seen this a hundred times. Why is it that the, the emergency is always this fantastical thing about the sudden overthrow of democracy? I, the thing is, I think it probably does communicate itself to large layers of the public to the extent that they're paying attention to this nonsense as it's, a, it's an emergency when we say it is because there are threats to the status quo. It's not an emergency when you're losing your job, as in the last 10 years of austerity or the last 12 months of the lockdown conditions that's never an emergency i think that i think people notice that yeah well i mean like that example you give of the the bbc like journalists talking about like this is a civil war between the educated and the uneducated this is just like it's the establishment is reconsolidating its power that, that's what this is and like trump if anything was anti-establishment it was an anti-establishment movement the same way that um, Bernie's first run was very anti-establishment. It railed against the one percent and like was very focused on that. Um, all that's happening now is the establishment is reconsolidating their power, and the 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 ruptures that have happened in society are not going to go away. Like these emerging movements of like you know the alt right or um, the far left, like they're not going away. And it's about like when there is a crack. In the establishment and populist movements rise up they can either go to the left or the right and i think that that has to be part of the left's purpose is really about like being able to seize some of the narrative about the establishment because it does exist and it is the one percent but actually like driving the fact that it is a class issue um and bringing like a like a left narrative to that sort of stuff Absolutely. And I think because politics is now so post-traditional, I mean, we're part of a generation of people who have never seen social democracy, which if you think about it in the course of 20th century kind of civilization, 
is an unusual situation to be in. We've never seen social democracy. And if you're on the right, you chances are, I mean, in Britain, for example, you've never seen a traditional conservative right, right? Um, which is part of the background, by the way, to how you can get a movement like the Yellow Vests in France, which um, it's absolutely, you know, it's totally understandable how people would say that could swing either way, you know, or parts of it could swing in different directions, for example, right? And there's some evidence that that's uh, the case. And I say that as someone who thinks that Yellow Vests is the most exciting working class movement on the European continent for a very long time. It was the last column I wrote before um, I, I left the National. Uh -huh. I, I say I left the National in scare quotes. <laughs> but that, but the, yeah, I think I think people need to come to, to, to terms with that reality that traditions having atrophied the way they are, the way they have, it's, you know, it's inevitable that they will take on the, the, the movements of resistance, the establishment will take on relatively amorphous forms and where there will be a constant and frenetic battle of ideas within those movements. And the left, you know, I mean, needs, needs to see itself as a force of intervention to those debates rather than seeing that entire situation as extremely scary. Um, like, an argument, an argument inside a movement like the Yellow Vest is worth a million times what an argument within a branch of momentum is worth, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? It's worth a million conversations with people who are already largely where you are politically. Um, but yes, anyway, um, that's America. <laughs> I said that. It was I, very partridge. It was very, it was very, it was very partridge. I was thinking of... Uh, uh, David Brent in the office. That's Crufts. Um, so let's get rerouted into our into our national situation, uh, as we're always promising, always threatening to do. Uh, Labour Party, Scottish Labour Party. Oh, here <laughs> I had a weird dream about Anna Sarwar last night. I dreamt that Anna Sarwar was making a documentary about my life. <laughs> This is why I'm reading Freud. Like, uh, <laughs> what does it mean? Uh, um, well, he couldn't very well have a documentary into his own life because because that would lose him all like, <laughs> all potential all potential votes. So it's a battle between Anisarwar and Monica Lennon. Am I allowed to use the word milk toast again? Uh, yeah, for those two, probably. Um, I mean, Jesus. And I saw Monica. I know that people are saying Monica Lennon's great, and that it's just that, uh, come on. Do you Did know what I mean? Murphy. I'm sure she backed Murphy for a leader. She could well have. I, I, I don't, I, I'm one of these people, I've always said, I don't believe in a soft left in the same way that I don't believe in unicorns and fairies. I just don't think it exists. I think that a soft, scratch a, the so-called soft left, Scratch the new statesman, and it's just Tony Blair. Scratch the new statement, new statesman, and it's just a follow back pro EU. Uh, absolutely, right? <laughs> with a few pretensions because it once read a book by like Ralph Miliband or something. Um, it, it, the soft left does not exist. Basically, it's just liberalism. It's nothing to do with social democracy either. I think there's one last retort that Biden. I heard people refer to Biden as a social democrat. That's yeah, madness. That's madness. Like that madness. actually, like, yeah, that's that's. There, are, there aren't really any social democrats. You know what I mean? I mean, you, I, I don't, I don't even really accept the claim that Bernie Sanders or um, Jeremy Corbyn are social democrats. Like, it, only because I think that's a, a historical designation. It belongs to the past. Yes. Um, like, I think that the left-wing populist is probably a better description of that. It's vague as all these categories typically are. Neither Monica Lennon nor Anasawa fits that mold. Uh, Anasawa is pure cynicism embodied in a human being, right? So if people want to say Monica Lennon, Lennon's preferable to that on that basis, then fair enough. But I'm not going to... Do you know, like, um, I did that thing where I said, oh, it, you know, it'll be good if Richard Lennon becomes leader of the Labour Party, right? Out of a pretty hollow sense of duty, right, to... Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I will support someone who's on the left of any institution coming to the head of that institution. Like, I, I would want anyone who's on the left of a 
trade union um, election to, to lead that union, etc. Right? That's just a kind of standard response. But I, there, there are some lengths to which I will not go, and they, they include the obviously soft left, which is just a faction of Blairism, basically. Well, this is like, I actually am not sure that like previous analysis that I might have supported, that you might have supported, which was if like anyone on the left can seize control of an institution, then that's a good thing for the left. I actually just don't think that that flies anymore. Mm, I think yeah. like the final nail in the coffin of that was Corbynism. Like I, I, I think it's shown that the left has to begin building our own institutions like this idea of capturing institutions and turning them to like a left, you can't do that if you're a left populist. Mm. Like you just can't because it's, the institutions are part of the establishment and the contradiction there is so great. And um, they actually have to begin to build your own institutions. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it will still take some time to play out and see what the what the long run influence of Corbyn taking control of the Labour Party? Well, I say control that he never controlled the Labour Party, right? Being the, the titular head of, of the Labour Party, what the long run influence of that will be? I have thought to myself, perhaps Sanders was always in a better position because he never formally became the leader of that god awful organisation. Right. So, I mean, the, in, in the United States, you do hear some people say, well, how comes they're in a much more robust shape mm. um, in America? Like the, the kind of left, they are the broad left, because I think they never got to, to destroy their hopes by leading the Democratic Party. Um, so, I, I, yeah, but it will be interesting to see. I mean, the, the horror of the, the tail end of Corbynism is that my worry is that people who are involved in that project are basically heading in two broad directions. They're going to stay in the Labour Party and become demoralised. They'll leave the Labour Party and become demoralised. Um, and I and I hope that's not true, but I, I worry that that is the consequence of Corbyn being in that position for years and because he was abandoned by his allies and the leadership and so on, slowly shedding his politics over 2018 and 2019, that process of attrition was absolutely brutal like crushingly demoralizing this like proves my point a bit about like the like simply the left seizing control of an institution because bernie didn't have to do that that's they ended up in a better better position or he was in a better position at the time now he's been like i think stuffed onto a committee by biden oh grim um we've got about 10 minutes left so Scotland, um, we're literally squeezing Scotland onto tacking Scotland onto the end of a predominantly American podcast. Or such charlatans, man. Yeah. Um, um, so also this week, uh, Gordon Brown has been in talks with Michael Gove about saving the union. Saving the union's become a bit of a light motif in Westminster. Yeah. The Times, the British state newspaper of records, uh, had a front page splash. What worrying that the, the, the kingdom was disunited and so on, right? And it is a bit like, hello, uh, yeah, where, where yeah. have you been? Yeah, Scott, Scotland, Colin. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's become a bit of a, of a thing and probably will become more so in the run up to the Scottish elections. Um, I mean, a, a few obvious things to say about that. Uh, I assume that Michael Gove just sees this as his kind of his thing now, his niche, because he's not got another one because he's shit. Uh, and he has this idea that he's a Scot and therefore he's a Scot whisperer because there are so few of them in Westminster these days. <laughs> Gordon Brown is another Scot whisperer. They got together and whispered to each other. Their ideas about saving the union are crap beyond belief. Uh, totally stagnant. There's no new ideas. Um, at the same time, uh, in Scotland, there is no evidence to my mind that we are actually heading for an independence referendum. So you have, once again, this kind of self-reinforcing economy of the constitutional question in Scotland, where every unionist bar none is running around saying we're in imminent danger of becoming independent, which only sort of adds justification or adds legitimacy to the claims by Mike Russell, Constitution Secretary, and Ian Blackford, head of the SNP Westminster, that we are going to have a referendum this year. 
later in 2021, a claim made for every year since 2016. 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, not 2020 because we were being ravaged by a virus as we still will be later this year. And now 2021 are all the dates when the SNB leadership claimed we were going to have another independence referendum. And every single time they press that button, because everyone has an interest in the delusion that we're going to have an independence referendum. We need, yes, we, need, we need the delusion. Like our yeah. politicians need the delusion. It's kind of the same way that the liberal establishment within America needed Trump to give them some kind of sense of purpose. Yeah. The, the carrot of a referendum dangling. So nationalists need it because they need to be saying, like this, the kind of like sturgeon nationalists need it because they need to be saying something. The, um, the grassroots of the SNP need something to press on. The unionists need it so they can do, the SNP won't stop talking about independence. Everybody needs the carrot. Yeah, I need it. I need I it. because I need it. Like, I need I, something to say on this podcast. Yeah, I need to snarl at people and say, yeah. why is that referendum? Yeah, yeah. I need to be able to say, why don't you understand that there's not going to be a referendum? I need it for this talking point right now. Uh, I'm dependent on it. I'm I'm part of the I'm part of the same uh, addiction. Uh, You're part of the referendum carrot industrial complex. Absolutely, absolutely. Because I need to be in a position to tell everyone that they are being deluded. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we're all we're all cashing in on on one level. We're all uh, even if it's just a psychological level um, on on the delusion that there's going to be an independence referendum. And I just, I don't know, like, I, I thought when the SNP released their 11 point, you know, escalator to nowhere, that um, people would be like that. I mean, I knew people would be overjoyed for two hours and then be like, oh, this is actually nonsense, isn't it? But it seems to have had, uh, had some impact, such as the desire. Do you know what I mean? This is one of these classic things of you want it to be true so badly. Someone make a meme with that X Files thing. I, you know, in in DF two, I want to believe, right? Um, because people want it so badly. Even people who are really critical of, of the SNP leadership of, like a week ago are like, okay, like we need to start making plans, blah blah blah. Like we have no case. Like apart from anything else, this is the other thing I don't get. Right. First of all, let's return to this subject when we have all the evidence before us. But in case people haven't noticed, then it's possible some people haven't, such as the bubbles on, on social media. But the architect of the SNP's rise to power and his protege are currently locked in mortal combat, right, before <laughs> the world's media, right? Yeah. That's fucking reason one why this shit isn't happening this year, right? Two, we don't have a currency policy. We don't have any idea of how we enter the European Union, which is the whole thing is being pitched on that. If we were to adopt the SNP's policy on currency, we couldn't have normal forms of state assistance like the furlough scheme or um, payments to businesses to keep them afloat. Had Scotland been independent under those circumstances in one of of the many times that we've been promised an independence referendum, say 2019 or 2018, Scotland would be fucking flattened by the present economic crisis we would we would be almost unique among western countries for the state of our collapse because we wouldn't have the basic capacity to 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 pay workers to keep working to pay businesses to stay open etc the the whole economic perspective for independence is totally redundant and uh yeah i could go on i could go on about this at, at some length just as needless to say it ain't happening it's not happening and we need to completely reconstruct the case before it happens yeah well we need to actually have uh like our own currency and a plan for that like that would that would be like my first uh port of call my first Um, desire i think that that sunday times article that front page the disunited kingdom thing very exciting so independent scotland united ireland independent Wales, like very exciting it's, it's a fun idea. It, Isn't, it? Is. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, the breakup of Britain, like maybe in our lifetime. Like, how exciting. It is. Uh, I mean, it is world historic. As we've often said, though, like, you know, it would be a kind of thing of uh, 
yeah, we're involved in this kind of world, world historic happening, but then you're kind of like, ah, we are now a tiny northern European country with no relevance to wider world events. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll be like, you know, just become like a proxy state. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. But like for who? Live under the reign of King Biden. Yeah, or of course, ninety-eight-year-old Putin. <laughs> That's the choice is like eight-year-old King Biden or 98-year-old Vladimir Putin. I'd go yeah. for the latter. Biden is probably seeking recommendations from Putin for plastic surgeons right now. Because <laughs> he looks incredible. Putin's aging much better. His head may be 90% silicon, right? <laughs> but but uh, he's aging far better than Joe Biden. Um Okay, on that uh, bombshell, we will see you in a week or so. Yeah. yeah. See you there.